And instead of trying to punish the tool that might be used in a violation of privacy or of security laws or of some criminal enterprise, you punish the crime and the perpetrator, not the tool that was used. Hi, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and this is Future Proof. W. Russell Newman, or Russ as I like to call him, is professor of media technology at NYU, a founding faculty of the MIT Media Laboratory. He served as senior policy analyst in the White House Office of Science and Tech Policy, and he's got a ton of books. Maybe he'll tell you a little bit about that when we jump in. But in his new book, Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter, which just came out, he offers a surprisingly positive vision in which computational intelligence compensates for the well-recognized limits of human judgment, improves decision-making, and increases our agency. Drawing on his vast experience, he makes a convincing case about how human intelligence will co-evolve with digital technology to revolutionize how we think and behave. In today's episode, we explore the relationship between humans and AI. While many view AI with suspicion, he offers a hopeful perspective. And yeah, Russ believes that just as the wheel enhanced mobility, the rise of AI in everyday devices will revolutionize our decision-making. He also suggests that by embracing AI's evolutionary intelligence, we can better adapt to challenges and ensure our long-term survival. Join us as we delve into this optimistic view on AI's role in our future, starting right now. So first off, I'd like to kind of ask everybody just to start, who are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? How do you define yourself and your work? My name is Russ Newman. I'm a professor at NYU. My formal title is Professor of Media Technology. I taught at MIT for a number of years, also at Penn and Michigan. And in especially from the time at NYU, my PhD is in the social sciences, but my experience has been in studying the impact of technology on society. I've published about a dozen books. And the best one is the one we're going to talk about today. I love that. I think everybody's work presumably gets better the more thought that they've been able to put into any given topic. And first off, I love just anybody taking an optimistic perspective on AI, just because I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what you see out there now is a little bit more negative. You know, So I'm wondering, just to maybe level set. It's a good place to start. What makes you so hopeful about its potential? Well, Jeremy, as a student of future proofing and dealing with the impact of technology. I'm imagining you've been watching this pattern many times professionally yourself. When something demonstrates some potential and some power, there's both the hype, positive hype that this is going to be the answer to every single problem, which it won't be. And there's also a sense that, well, maybe this thing will be out of control. There's a very strong kind of Frankenstein meme notion of inventing technologies we can't control. And that's been especially true recently with the release of OpenAI's GPT 3.5 for and newer versions, especially ChatGPT. So it scares people when the computer starts talking like a person. And I think you got to be respectful for people who are concerned saying, what do we do to protect ourselves so that we make sure we stay in control? That's reasonable. But when people say, let's stop and not do anything for six months because we are confused, I don't think that makes any sense at all. I'm not sure anybody would be able to enforce that. And it's simply that the technology is new 
and only partially understood, I think, that generates this fear. Well, wait a minute, what's it going to do next? Yeah, I think that is definitely makes sense to me when you think about kind of where people are coming from and, you know, rather than deriding them, just having an honest discussion about it. But how about for you, in a nutshell, what makes you so hopeful about its potential? The basic recognition that these are powerful systems for computational decision-making is absolutely and utterly correct. But I'm convinced that we can maintain control over the systems. One of the ironies is that we've had various versions of artificial intelligence for 70 years. The term was invented at a summer retreat at Dartmouth College in 1955, and researchers and philosophers have been conducting research and trying tests ever since. And we've gotten three things that have change the character of the power of what's going on. Our capacity for computation has gotten very, very strong. We have large databases that we can analyze basically the entire internet. And third, and this is the excitement of the new inventions that are coming through, the mathematics underlying neural nets allow us to efficiently comb through trillions of words of human speech and begin to make sense of them. These models typically have somewhere around 100 billion parameters. And when anything is that complicated, you put the same probe into the system with the exact same words, and you get slightly different answers each time because it's such a complicated system, it may well emphasize different things at different times. So my concept is when they first invented various early models of artificial intelligence, they wanted people to take them seriously because people would laugh and say, oh, a computer will never ever be able to do any of that sort of thing. And so they tried to emphasize the locus of control being in the computer. And so they talk about a smart robot that would go out there and make decisions. So this generated this kind of Frankenstein notion of this independently willed machine going around and doing things, perhaps dangerous things. And I think we just have to get over that original insecurity of the early scientists saying, it's going to be good, it's going to work well. And now that we've demonstrated that it's working well, we need to now demonstrate we can keep control. Well, and I think in some ways, that's a perfect way of transitioning into the way that you differentiate for people between artificial intelligence and evolutionary intelligence. So maybe you can delve into that for a second. Okay. We're talking about a book entitled Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology will make us smarter. And the underlying argument is that the wheel gave us the capacity for transportation. Telecommunications allowed us to speak more long distances. The Industrial Revolution allowed us to increase our strength and control over our environment. And ultimately, these cognitively oriented technologies will actually allow us to make better decisions and be smarter. Let's take a just a minute, Jeremy, and think about what intelligence basically is. And it's the capacity to correctly interpret our environment, and respond accordingly to optimize the outcomes that we desire. And the problem is humans, because of the evolutionary process over all these years, have all kinds of well-documented biases, confirmation bias, and similar kinds of mild distortions in perceiving our environment. And my argument is that these technologies can correct for these biases and literally be an aid rather than a competitor. And I think that's, again, it's like one of those things where for some reason, I think we just look at this type of technology a little bit differently. But I mean, you're right with Google Docs, 
for instance, or Office or any other productivity tool. Maybe this is a naive or simple way of thinking about it, but we never freaked out and thought that we were useless. I think that we did often say, well, okay, the typewriter will obviously impact some jobs, just like the fax machine will impact some jobs. But it just strikes me as maybe there's an opportunity to think about, yes, all of the jobs that will be adversely impacted, but also all the jobs that will be created. And maybe it's not going to be one-to-one, but it's just too simplistic to say that it's all going to be negatives. I agree. And there's a couple of incidents from the history of the evolution of AI that add to that. One of the first things AI systems did that got attention was getting good at playing various well-structured games, particularly chess. And after, and I guess it was the, um, I remember the, the year now, maybe the 1990s, that a chess master was beaten by an IBM chess playing system. The conclusion was that the chess playing computer was as good at and sometimes better than the grandmaster human. But the best possible machine of all was a machine that used the combination of the insights of the computer and the chess master at the same time. Same thing's true with doctors who are doing an analysis of radiology and x-rays. Turns out the machines are pretty good at detecting important elements in a disease and an x-ray, but the combination of the machine and the doctor together is the best. I want to build on that for a second. Can you give an example or two just to give people a taste? Because I found it really interesting how you get very practical in terms of how you see AI augmenting our decision-making capabilities in daily life. Okay. So one of the limits of the human brain, one fancy name we've got for the limitations of the capacity to think about more than one thing at a time is what psychologists call the magic number seven. And it's basically derived from experimental research that we can probably keep not a lot more than seven things in our brains at one time to try to evaluate how each of them would influence a decision. And computers are really good at balancing a large number of things at the same time. And the other element of human thinking is we're a little, just a little bit lazy and we don't want to take the effort to run through and think about, well, what would the difference be? At a store, we see a price comparison. We're just too lazy to look it up and figure out which is the better purchase. And a, a wearable computer on your shoulder, smart glasses, ultimately smart contact lenses, gives you that extra piece of advice and in many ways compliments for the, and corrects for the biases of human perception. Yeah, I think that those are really good ones. And it does strike me that there are all of these different friction points that we can optimize for and make things a little bit better and easier for ourselves. But yet it's also interesting to me that I know you talk about this a bit, about why we as humans tend to project human traits onto the machines that we interact with, right? Because I'm wondering, do you see a future where all of the machines are made to mimic us and that allows us to accept them a little bit better? Or does that actually get in the way of seeing them for what they are, which is machines or essentially enablement? I'm going to opt for the latter, Jeremy, of your options there. I think it gets in the way. The most famous test of whether a computer is intelligent is the so-called Turing test, where you're typing away and you can't tell whether the person at the other side that's typing back at you is a computer or a real person. So that the basic notion is that the only way that we can demonstrate intelligence is to look like humans. And I think that's just backwards and the major impediment. What we want is a set of decision-making tools that complement and correct for all the limitations of human cognition. So 
How about a little bit more about how you see that relationship between humans and AI evolving in the next decade? You know, like, let's assume that you're right and we do a better job of creating more human-like machines, which then maybe helps us accept them a little bit more and it helps us understand what they are and what they're not. So we, you know, don't start to essentially judge them by the wrong parameters. How do you see the next decade playing out? Well, I have a couple of different examples. Let me pick one to illustrate. You notice that the evolved human system can respond to sound and to light. We have ears and eyes to sense what's going on in our environment. But unlike some fish and birds, we cannot perceive electromagnetic radiation, radio waves. And now we're going to, basically with a smartphone in our pocket, we now have three dimensions for interacting with our environment. And So far, mostly what we're doing is checking email and occasionally getting some advice on directions and GPS and geography and maps. But my notion is that in the future, just as when you put a particular set of clothes on that represents you and you are interpreted in your environment by how you've dressed yourself, there'll basically be a electromagnetic envelope that each of us will have surrounding us. And so when we enter a conversation or enter a economic transaction, the electronic envelope will start negotiating with the other electronic envelopes in the room and the negotiation will start. The humans have ultimate control, but they have assistance and communications by their electronic envelope. How about the idea of, you know, this is something that you talk a bit about, that the migration of AI from traditional devices to more personal items like smart glasses or contact lenses and just basically AI becoming more personalized in general? Because I think for a lot of people, that's something that they see on one hand, you know, somewhat scary, on the other hand, very potentially game changing. Well, we think about this thing we call a computer. And for most of us, that means a desktop or a laptop. We don't tend to quite think of our cell phones as computers, although they are extremely powerful computational devices. And what you see is this migration from originally a very large room filled with vacuum tubes and air conditioners to a large refrigerator-sized PDP-11 computer to a desktop to a laptop, to a handheld, and then to glasses, to wearables, and ultimately to contact lenses. As we miniaturize and use wireless connections and get better at powering these devices, the fact that Google Glass didn't work very well, they were basically seen as invasive and they hadn't yet gotten the batteries to work right. So some people said, well, that's a failure. Let's go on to some other direction. But I think there's a great deal of potential, starting with what will look like a regular pair of glasses that many people wear and everybody takes for granted. And those glasses will have the computing power of 10 smartphones. I mean, you're right. Sometimes it's just a matter of being, you know, hitting the right technology at the right time. I think that that was probably a case of being a bit too early. And, you know, there's argument to be made that maybe you want to be three years too early rather than, I don't know, 10 or 15. But It obviously for AI, we seem to be at this perfect moment where it's a bit different than smart classes back then where people are starting to see the potential and we don't yet know what it can be, but we do know that there are so many different applications. And obviously, as you point out, it has been here for a while. So it makes sense that we're this far along at this point. Well, it seems that Mark Zuckerberg is willing to bet the farm on some kind of wearable glasses 
And his current models at Meta is basically ski goggles. And they have a number of characteristics, including the fact that you can actually see the eyes of the wearer. And they're still pretty big and heavy and distracting. And the notion that just a very simple pair of glasses would be giving you the capacity to see not only what's in your environment, but to overlay information about the names of the different people in the room, their background, to not to bury you in a entirely artificial environment, but to augment your understanding of the environment in which you find yourself. Which actually brings me up to something that you talk about in the book that I think is really interesting, the idea that AI can essentially help us think better. And so first off, maybe you can provide some examples of how this might manifest in our daily lives. And then I'm going to push back on that idea a little bit afterwards. Well, I do say I use the example because it's hard to imagine how this ultimately will. And we may have some of the elements of the technology incorrect at this time in projecting. But if you imagine a character that we now know, Siri, sitting on your shoulder and giving you advice as you go through the day. And in this case, the Siri can see everything you can see and understands the names and the backgrounds of the people and the institutions and the other elements in your environment. And Siri whispers some good advice in your ear and you go, yeah, you're probably right, but I still want to do it the old way. Never mind, Siri, shut up. I'm going to do it the old way. So I think there'll be lots of example of people not taking good advice when it's offered. And I say, well, T, is that going to be the dominant response? My answer to that is, I think so. As you discover that your ways advice for driving gives you increasingly accurate predictions of alternative paths to get your car where it wants to go and where you want to go, we'll discover that it's just simpler and easier. And from our experience, discover that doing it, in this case, the Siri way, is efficient and useful. Okay. And maybe I don't have to push back on that as much as I thought, because it is interesting how I think that initially, you know, as some of the people that first ran to use generative AI in particular earlier in 2023 were getting into trouble because they were arguably letting it do their thinking for them. And I think you probably wouldn't necessarily disagree with this, but that's not what it's for. I think maybe helping people generate ideas faster, for instance, doing some busy work that is quote unquote beneath a person that can be automated a little bit more. Maybe that's a good use case, but it was just interesting to me that I was reading all of these cases of certain journalistic outlets that were just trying to say, okay, let's just feed it some content and let it write as if it was a poorly trained human being. And that's probably not the right way to have it. Like basically don't have it pretend to think and then say that those are your thoughts. Rather, use it to be more efficient and then have more time to think. We all want to think as human beings. That's the fun work. So don't outsource that. That's just my take. No, I find myself absolutely in agreement. Of course, people will abuse and misuse any new technology that comes along. It's going to take us a while to figure out how to use it optimally. Yep. Well said. And I think nobody should really expect when something is so nascent uh, that we're going to know exactly what to do. So, you know, obviously we have a lot of people who listen who are, you know, ahead of the curve. But what advice would you give to individuals who are skeptical about integrating AI into their daily lives? Just some kind of way to wade into the waters or even convince them that they're actually doing it already? Because in a lot of cases, they are integrating it without even thinking about that they are. Yeah, I think the best advice I can give is to be playful, experiment with it, enjoy the surprises that comes from these utterances, be alert to the fact that they make many mistakes, it's seemingly intentionally. The analysts have come up with this fancy name, 
hallucination to describe when an AI system makes a mistake. It's going to be increasingly accurate so that the hallucinations will be fewer and fewer, but treat it as a experimental toy. Understand that it's like the Model T car. You got to put your goggles on and get all dressed up and be prepared to have the wind and dirt in your face because it's a Model T. We're at the, very much at the Model T stage of AI. Which is interesting because the day that we're recording this is actually the 115th anniversary of the first Ford Model T being built. Don't know if you knew that. I don't think anybody in the world knows that but me. Jeremy, you're a car guy. You know, well, I did, that's why I appreciated the uh, the analogy. And I know that there's obviously, there's so much in this space. And I think that there can be a little bit of a bit of FOMO for people who are trying to follow each and every AI company and every AI stock and, you know, trying to separate out the bluster from who's actually doing something substantive that people should be paying attention to. But from your perspective and in terms of who you're paying attention to, are there key players that either you recommend other people follow or just that for your own edification, you're paying close attention to? Okay, so here's the issue that I think is a critical one for us to think through collectively as a community and a nation and a world. These systems with extremely complex, what we call in the computing world, big iron if you talk to these engineers, they have this word they use. They say, well, it took a lot of compute. It takes a lot of compute. That's their phrase. And that means it's hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars of computing power and time to process these billions and billions of words and images in order to generate that improved decision capacity of the systems. So that means that the big guys are going to have the systems. And we get a technology that depends on massive scale and uh, tens of millions of dollars. That sounds a little less democratic and competitive than it might otherwise be. So the challenge is going to be whether once a central system can be made, and there are a number of them, and so they are competing and therefore not unreasonably priced by a monopolist, can we have fine-tuned versions that are fine-tuned to be particularly good at stuff that deals with cars so that people like Jeremy can say, this is the version of a chat GBT7 or 8 that I'm going to use because why does it know its car history? Okay, so that actually makes me think of something I didn't think I was going to ask. But does that mean that the future is just going to be, I don't know, making it up at five, six players that just, you know, that you have obviously like, yes, the fine tune niches, right? If somebody else can carve out a little bit of a market share for themselves, but it just seems that if you incentivize, if it's like a very much like a winner take all kind of market and a few major players have the compute power to make this happen, does this wind up further putting a lot of power into just a few hands? Well, I think initially that's going to be the case. And my hope is that the marketplace will demand that access to these very large, very expensive decision systems allows people to refine the capacity and fine tune the capacity so that rather than there being five major systems, there'll be five major systems, each of which has a thousand versions. And there's a lot going on out there to generate real competitive pricing and access for people. Part of what's going on now is a large language models in different languages. And all of the major players have been emphasizing that. My understanding is that Google has been particularly active in, and Meta as well in multi-language modeling. There's a case where yeah, a large language model is nice, but if it only does English, that's not very inclusive. 
Really good point. And speaking of inclusive, I think that you know, in figuring out the general purpose of having broad competition, but also regulation in the market, Congress, of course, is looking at AI in general. I know this is something that you've written about and think a lot about. Maybe you could just in a nutshell say what you think ought to happen with respect to regulation, but then what do you expect to actually occur? Because maybe they're not necessarily one and the same. Jeremy, you use the phrase FOMO for fear of missing out. And my sense is that in Washington, they are FOMO crazy. And as soon as something comes along that looks like it's going to get a lot of attention, each of these politicians jumps in front of a camera and starts referring to the, the latest term and saying, well, we got to be on top of this. We got to be paying attention. And they invent totally irrelevant, in my view, metaphors like guardrails. And most recently, last week, the new term was an emergency break, as if those physical metaphors had anything to do with how these art systems work. And my view is because it's not possible to define artificial intelligence as something that is distinct from any computational algorithmic decision system. That means that any little calendar you set up that says, well, if it's on a Sunday, I don't want to do a work thing, reschedule the work appointment for a weekday. It's a, a very if-then little statement. Well, that would be an artificial, that would be qualified and you'd need to get a license from the Federal Artificial Intelligence Commission before you could even program your little calendar to make a difference between the weekend and the weekday. And given that AI is fundamentally math, you can't regulate math. My recommendation is that they monitor and instead of trying to punish the tool that might be used in a violation of privacy or of security laws or of some criminal enterprise, you punish the crime and the perpetrator, not the tool that was used. Well said. You know, difficult to do, but certainly a more just way of approaching the whole thing. And yeah, so Russ, this was fantastic. We're obviously going to include a link in the show notes, but I will tell everybody here, if you have to read just one thing that gives you optimism about the AI-driven future, that's also kind of based in reality. You know, you'd have a few really compelling arguments, and it's a nice contrast with the whole sky is falling that you get from a lot of other spots, but you also kind of back up your arguments, which is also nice. Definitely encourage everybody to pick it up. And Russ, thanks so much for making the time. Jeremy, thank you. Thanks again to Russ for making the time. Be sure to pick up the book. I'll include a link in the show notes. And if you like what you just heard, and this is your first time here, you know the drill by now. Be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, the choice is yours. And if you're a longtime listener, please remember to rate and review Future Proof because that is the number one way we get the show in front of people just like you. Got a burning question you uncovered on a future episode? Go to futureproofshow.com to submit. And special thanks this week to producer Jason Stack. Once again, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and you've been listening to Future Proof.